0: You're listening to Recommended, where we talk to interesting people about their favorite books. From childhood favorites to classics to new and forthcoming reads, you'll hear how the people who make books happen have been influenced by the ones they've read. Today, Jen Wang has chosen Where the Red Fern Grows by Wilson Rawls, and Courtney Mom has chosen The Ensemble by Asia Gable. Jen Wang is a cartoonist, author, and illustrator living in Los Angeles— She is the author of The Prince and the Dressmaker, Coco Be Good, and co-author of the New York Times best-selling graphic novel In Real Life with Cory Doctorow. Her work has also appeared in Los Angeles Magazine, The Believer, Hazlitt, Slate, and McSweeney's. She has also written for the Adventure Time and Lumberjanes comic series. She is the co-founder and organizer of the annual festival Comic Arts Los Angeles.
1: Her newest book is Stargazing,
0: a heartwarming middle-grade graphic novel.
1: Uh, My name is Jen Wang and Where the Red Fern Grows is my recommended. Um, Yeah, so Where the Red Fern Grows is a book about a little boy named Billy um, I think it takes place in nineteen, the kind of late 1920s in the Ozarks. And he is obsessed with getting these two hunting dogs that he's going to train and teach them how to hunt. Um, and he does that. Um, and they end up winning a championship hunting annual hunt. And uh, it's just like this really great simple story about just kind of like a kid who loves dogs and has a dream and is able to like work really hard and achieve it. It has like a bit of that like sports story arc but it's also um, you know as I think a lot of people are familiar it has a very sad ending which is a kind of like one of those like really classic like tearjerker um, scenes but yeah it's just it's a book that I always really enjoyed um, and I think about a lot still just because I feel like it's so Simple and compelling, especially if you're someone who loves animals, it's like really hard not to want to uh, gravitate towards. I think it was just one of those books that was around because it's a classic. I think it was published in the s- 1960s. I think I was in a phase where I was reading a lot of books about either horses or dogs. <laughs> um, I was reading you know, a lot of the Jack London books. So I think um, the cover has like a little boy in the woods with like two dogs on it. So I think I was just It was just always around and I wanted to read it, I think. And I think my copy might have even come from like Scholastic Book Fair or something. I think I initially wanted to read it because it had dogs on the cover, obviously. But um, I think once I started reading it, what I really liked was that around that age, you know, middle grade, middle school, where you're starting to really discover your own independence and the character in the book has a lot of agency he spends a lot of time like you go through his whole thought process of like how am I going to get these dogs what am I going to have to do to earn the money to get them and like he works two years and like saves up all this money from just doing like random gigs to like get these dogs that are on discount basically on sale um but, it, you know, because he comes from, he's, like, very poor. Like, his family is, like, this is, like, a little before the Great Depression, I think. But they're, like, we're not going to spend money on these, like, really purebred, expensive toys, basically. So he's able to do that. And then, you know, you go through his thought process of, like, how he's going to train them, the sense of achievement he feels when his dogs are able to, to like, successfully work with him. And then he feels that sense of uh, failure when they not able to. And it's just like a really compelling way to to talk about your dreams and your goals and how you work to achieve them when you're that age. Because there's not a lot of control in your life when you're a kid, but there's like certain things that I think you're starting to, you're branching out, you're kind of seeing who you are beyond your parents or your friends and like, you know, what you want to do. I think I was interested in writing and storytelling at that age, but I, I don't know that I specifically thought about this book as like, this is what I want to do. I think I was just reading a lot and this was a book that like, just really got me for whatever reason. And, and, you know, again, I was, <laughs> I was reading a lot of books about animals at the time. And I think I imagine, I think I was like doing writing where i i write a story about like wolves or something. So it was maybe the kind of thing I I like to read. I don't read a lot of kids stuff. And I think partly it's because I spend a lot of time in that mindset when I'm trying to work on my own books that it's like, I I feel like I need to have like a little break or something. I know a lot of people who work in kid lit read a lot of kids books and and maybe I should be more. But I think just because I, I have sort of a limited Reading time, I just end up, it's like I need to read like some, you know, nonfiction book or something. I've actually been reading more graphic novels lately, I think because I want to catch up with what people in my specific and narrow field are doing, because I I kind of fell off that for a while and, and it's been actually really nice to graphic novels again. There's something about these really classic stories. Even before I reread it, um, I would be able to explain to someone, you know, including, you know, all the way to the end, <laughs> the, like the like tragic ending, you know, like how, like what, what this book is like, how it's structured. And I think there's something about the simplicity that just kind of works. And you're able to add a lot of detail and texture and fill in the context, which are things that are less memorable, but like, but really fill things out and, I don't know. I think there's something about having a very basic story and just working from there. That's like a good way to think about writing. Because I feel like, at least for me, I'm more interested in sort of how a character behaves or or acts, and less interested in the, the world building type stuff. Which you know, I think like those stories can be really great and um, and amazing too. But for me, at least, I think thinking about a more simple linear storyline. And it's just sort of adding texture. It's like a good way for me to think about how to, how to structure something. It's hard for me to think of a favorite scene because a lot of it is, is so influenced by how I felt when I was reading it as a kid. But I think I was really into just like the beginning of the book where it's about Billy sort of really strongly desiring these dogs and they're, he knows they're expensive and his parents are like, no, we're not going to get these dogs. And then he finds a magazine that has like an ad in the back for two. He specifically wants two. And just like the thought process of how he's going to achieve that and he goes through the different little jobs that he takes up and saves up over time for. And I think I was just really into this kind of almost nerdy, tactical thinking of like, how am I going to get this thing that I really want? And I think it's a inspirational <laughs> way of looking at just achieving your goals. I think a lot of maybe other kids in this situation just would have not done it because it would have just had to have been something his parents did for him but he just knew he had to do it himself and he did it and I think uh, it's still something that I think about a lot like that the whole setup of the book and why I was really obsessed with it I think that sense of agency is like really powerful when you're a kid and you're like 10 years old and you're like wow I can do a thing you know I can earn money and I can make this thing happen and it's it's really cool it's very relatable.
0: That was Jen Wang recommending Where the Red Fern Grows by Wilson Rawls. Her newest graphic novel, Stargazing, is published by First Second and is now available wherever books are sold. You can follow her on Twitter at Alugobi. That's
2: A-L-O-O-G-H-O-B-I. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888-LOVE and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. Today's episode is brought to you by Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing. You'll only cross these blades once in a page-turning new tale of revenge strategy and so many lies. Best-selling Red Tower Books is releasing its next year's read that will capture your imagination and keep you guessing until the end. May Corlin's Five Broken Blades tells an intricate high-stakes tale of five total strangers united in a plot that will test their strength, wits, and courage. Each has their reasons, all have secrets." But while it's easy to portray a stranger, it's not so simple to stab a friend or a lover, okay, in the back. Now these five blades must choose between vengeance and one another. Pick up five broken blades by Mae Corlin for a thrilling, adventurous tale filled with risk, romance, adventure, and oh, so many lies. The relationships in it are complex and nuanced and involve everything from friends to enemies found in biological family and lovers and more. Thanks again to Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publishers of the smash hit Fourth Wing for sponsoring this episode.
0: Courtney Mum is the author of the novels Costa Alegre, Touch, and I Am Having So Much Fun Here Without You, as well as the forthcoming handbook Before and After the Book Deal, A Writer's Guide to Finishing, Publishing, Promoting, and Surviving Your First Book, which is published by Catapult. Her writing has been widely published in such outlets as BuzzFeed, The New York Times, Oh! The Oprah Magazine, and Poets and Writers. She's the founder of the learning collaborative The Cabins, and she also runs a service called The Query Doula, where she helps writers prepare their manuscripts and query letters for an agent's eyes.
3: My name is Courtney Mom. The Ensemble by Asia Gable is my recommended. The Ensemble is the debut novel from Asia Gable, and I like to think of it as trust exercise set in the music world and not quite as dark as trust exercise. In it we meet four friends, Jana, a violinist, and the leader of the quartet, Britt, a violinist, Daniel, a cellist, and Henry, who is a sort of prodigy. And we follow this group over numerous decades as they play together as a quartet, a classical music quartet. And we follow sort of some amorous intrigues that come up between them, competition over who has the most talent. There's some physical challenges that arrive and I used to play piano myself I wasn't nearly as talented as anyone in this book but it really meant something to me to read about the dedication that these pu- people put into their craft but then you're not alone you know you're not a solo pianist it was really moving to think about how four minds and bodies sitting on a, a dark stage the things that can happen to throw them off course or to make it so that their their performed work is a resounding success. It's written incredibly beautiful. It's just one of those flawless reads. And I, I think it's a book for everyone, regardless whether or not they like classical music. I started seeing the ensemble. Let's see, was it, did it come out last year? I think it was the summer of 2000. It was on a lot of lists and the cover was just beautiful. I'm a big fan of yellow. <laughs> yellow is a color that makes it way into my life in important ways I when I need like extra power I use this yellow nail polish and this book has this just perfect yellow cover with a bouquet of flowers and then when I read the the blurb about you know what the book was about where I live in Connecticut the Yale School of Art and Music relocates to my town in the summer and so for half the summer we have sort of if you can imagine bread loaf but it's all classical musicians that's These are the people who who populate my town in the summer. So I was really drawn for personal reasons to read a story about professional musicians playing in a quartet because I'd spent many years watching these up and coming musicians learning more about the craft themselves. I live directly across from the campus. So when I go to my Mailbox, which is very often. (laughs) They have these picnic tables set up right across from my house. And also the musicians, they stay with local residents every summer. So a lot of the musicians use my backyard to come back and forth from their host family's house to their practice sessions. (laughs) And then also we have this local lake and none of the musicians come for whatever reasons. Most of them are not here with their own vehicles. And they don't have bikes and it's a little bit of a haul to walk to the lake. So my husband and I are always picking up these, <laughs> these stray musicians who are too polite to try and hitchhike. And so, you know, little by little, we get to know them. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we picked up four musicians from the lake and I had my little daughter in the car who we, we take to their practices and stuff. So she thinks that these people are rock stars. I asked everyone to go around and say which instruments they played. And this young woman who happened to be just beautiful as well. So my daughter who loves princesses thought that we were dealing with a princess. She said she plays the bassoon. And I'm not sure why, but my, my five-year-old is really excited about the bassoon. And this young woman said that she would come over and play the bassoon for her. And I thought like, this is just how extraordinary. What a privilege. My reading life as a writer is a little bit all over the place. I would say maybe 35 to 40% is sort of obligatory books I have to read because I'm hoping to blurb them or I'm going to review them. Or in a situation like right now where I'm on book tour, I do try to read the books of the people that I'm going to be in conversation with. Or if I'm moderating a conversation myself, I think it's the least you can do to be aware of your colleagues. Work and then, of course, I have friends who have books coming out. I want to read their books, and then when it comes to pleasure, I mean, sometimes I'll follow these lists that pop up around the internet. But what I do actually, I live just steps from my local library, and the acquisition department there is just unbelievable, and so mostly when I have time, like, okay, I want a great new read, I just walk into the library and I look at their recommended reads table. And what's neat about this library is that you're as likely to find something from a Simon & Schuster um, as you are something from Coffeehouse Press. They really have incredible taste, and they're very good about purchasing the books of independent presses. So, Really, I'd sort of use my my local library to point me in the direction of what I should read next. And then often I'll get it at the library. And then if I really like it, I'll, I'll purchase it from IndieBound or something like that. It's funny, I find myself reading often the books that I'm most absorbed by are the books that I could never write. Like I can't, I've tried, I've written drafts of what I think of as like sweeping epics that. <laughs> traverse multiple decades with many different characters, and each chapter is from a different character's point of view. And I can't do it, you know. I just, I, I really, for me, excel at voice-driven work, and perhaps in a, a heightened timeline, a sort of squeezed timeline. So it's sort of a vacation for me to gravitate towards writers like Asia Gable or um, a Maggie Shipstead, for example. Or Zadie Smith who managed (laughs) to create these symphonies, really. Michelle Hoover comes to mind too as someone who does multiple characters' points of views really well. I just think I'm a first person or close third Mm -hmm. writer. Do I have an elevator pitch? I mean, I guess my elevator pitch would be what I said at the outset that it's trust exercise set in the music world and a little less dark. Last summer. Um I was talking it up all over the place and I'm bringing it up again now because the soapbox that I, I don't know, have chosen to mount <laughs> on, on this particular book tour is that backlists deserve our recognition and time and excitement. And there's so many great books that came out last year, two years ago, five years ago, That, and you know, they had various degrees of success, but most books get about two weeks in the limelight and then the publishers move on, the readers move on, and that's fine. It makes sense. There's books coming out every Tuesday, but these books, they need us to revisit them. Otherwise, they do disappear off the shelves. So I was talking with my agent the other day and dreamt up a wonderful new position in publishing, which would be the backlist publicist someone whose job is just dedicated to promoting the the backlist of the publisher that they're working for i think that would be so cool
0: <laughs> that was courtney mom recommending the ensemble by asia gable her novel costa Alegre, published by tin house books is available wherever books are sold you can follow her on twitter at c mom that's c m a u m Many thanks to Jen Wang and Courtney Mom for joining us and sharing some of their favorite reads. Thanks also go out to our sponsors for making today's episode possible. If you like what you're hearing, please do drop by us on Apple Podcasts to leave a rating or a review. We're always happy to see the feedback, and reviews will help other bookish listeners to find our show. You can find show notes, including titles mentioned, at bookriot.com recommended, And you can email us feedback, personal favorites, and suggestions at recommended at bookriot.com.